Let's turn in God's Word this morning to Psalm 2. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 19, the sitting of Jesus Christ at God's right hand. As we read through this psalm, let's observe the power of the ascended Christ. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant Word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His Holy Scriptures. It's on the basis of Psalm 2 and many other passages of God's Word that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19, question 50, why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? And in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me. Come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. 
but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the closer that we come in time to the return of Jesus Christ, the more fervently the question asked by the psalmist in verse 1 of Psalm 2 will weigh upon our minds. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing. Already this question is on our minds as we hear reports through the news of the growth and development of lawlessness on this earth. Why is it that the heathen rage, assemble themselves together in rebellion against God and against authority? Why is there lawlessness on the streets, looting, stealing, burning? Why? What for us now is a question of why does it happen out there? Why do we hear of it on the news? We'll change to a question of why do the heathen rage against me? What earlier was a general question about the development of wickedness on this earth will soon become a very personal question. Why do the wicked hate and persecute me? Why is it that my coworker always is mocking, taunting me for my faith in Jesus Christ? Why is it that my employer is threatening me if I continue to stand by Christian? morals, and Christian principles. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Someday the question could be asked, which may God graciously forbid, why do they rage against my child, my son, or my daughter? Why must my family be torn apart because of the raging of the wicked. The closer we come to the moment of the glorious return of Jesus Christ, the more the question of the first verse of this psalm will be on our heads. It is important then, beloved, that we do not stop at verse 1. But we continue reading the rest of this psalm. Why do they rage? 
And the people imagine a vain thing. Verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set My King upon My holy hill of Zion. May God give us strength in that day to take our eyes off of the raging of the heathen and fix our eyes by faith on God's Son at His right hand. Let's consider this morning Christ, the head of the church. First, consider the fact that He is ascended, sitting at God's right hand. Second, His gracious work. Third, His preserving work. What does it mean when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ sits? at God's right hand. Every Christian understands generally the truth that we must not take this to mean that physically Christ is at the physical right hand of God. We understand that God is spirit, does not have a physical body the way that we have a physical existence on this earth. So, It is not possible to explain this as meaning that Jesus physically sits at God's physical right hand. But beyond that, what does it mean that He sits at God's right hand? Certainly, it must mean more than simply the fact that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and receives all of the blessings of heaven. It is true that Jesus Christ went up 40 days after His resurrection. He ascended from the Mount of Olives and was taken up into the glories of heaven. And there enters the promised rest. But it must be more than that, beloved. Because otherwise there is no distinction between what Jesus Christ receives and what we anticipate receiving. Jesus was taken off of this earth according to the promise of God. And Jesus was delivered into the glories of heaven. And how does that differ from what we expect to receive? The Scriptures repeat that this earth is not our home. We're pilgrims, nomads, who wander around from place to place, who seek a heavenly city. And our confidence is that after death, God will take our souls to heaven. And then at the final return of Jesus Christ, the graves will be opened up, our bodies raised to life and brought to heaven, reunited with our souls, and there we too will enter into the joys of heaven. So, if we simply explain Jesus Christ's session at God's right hand as being that Jesus has entered into heaven and enjoys the glories of heaven, then there is no distinction between what Jesus presently has in heaven and what we hope to receive in heaven. 
There's a difference. What is it? Does it mean that Jesus sits at God's right hand? That's a special spot. It's a privileged spot. The Bible does not say of you or me that we will sit at God's right hand. We'll ascend, but we're not going to sit at His right hand. The explanation according to the catechism is this. That Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that He might appear as head of His church, by whom the Father governs all things. The meaning of Jesus Christ sitting at God's right hand is this, that Jesus has been given by God the highest possible position of authority and of power, a position of dominion and might, the highest possible position of majesty and glory. There is no higher possible position to which a person could be exalted than where Jesus Christ presently sits. That He sits at God's right hand means that Jesus Christ has been given by God power. And it is not a limited power, but it is a universal power. That Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand means that God rules His church upon this earth and everything that has existence upon this earth through Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus Christ holds a scepter in His hand and nobody can go against the power of that scepter of Jesus Christ. That's the idea of Jesus Christ sitting at God's right hand. That God, as He approves of the finished work of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, has exalted Him to the highest, most glorious position to which He could be given. The wonder of this reality that Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand is impressed upon us all the more when we consider who it is that sits at God's right hand. Catechism says it's Christ. Christ sits at God's right hand. Christ, the office bearer, who is anointed with the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Christ, who is born of a woman who was made under the law, who suffered, who was reproached, hated of men, who was whipped, hanged, crucified, dead, and buried. Christ sits at God's right hand. The emphasis, beloved, is on the fact that Christ in His human nature 
has been exalted to this position of power and of glory. That's the only way in which we can understand this exaltation of Jesus Christ. It would not make sense to say that Jesus Christ, according to His divinity, His divine nature, was exalted to this position at God's right hand. The reason it would not make sense to say that is, according to His divine nature, He already is God. According to His divine nature, He is the second person of the Trinity. According to His divine nature, He is the Word of God who goes forth who went forth from God in the beginning and by whom the heavens and the earth were created. According to His divine nature, He already is King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet the Scriptures make clear that something was given unto Jesus Christ at the moment that He ascended into heaven. There was a moment where Christ was not at God's right hand, And then there was a change that happened and then Christ was at God's right hand. And the only way that we can understand that change that happened unto the position of Jesus Christ is when we understand that according to His human nature. According to His divinity, always was God. But according to His human nature, He descended to the depths of hell. And then God took Christ in that human nature and exalted Him to His right hand. What a comfort that is to us to know that Christ, who suffered and died on our behalf, whose flesh was broken for our sins, sits at God's right hand. The Catechism emphasizes the headship of Jesus Christ. Sitting at God's right hand, Christ is head of the church. Christ is ascended into heaven for this end that He might appear as head of the church by whom the Father governs all things. What a thought. Let us contemplate that for a few moments this morning. That our head sits at God's right hand. That He is our head. It means there's a union that He has with you. The children understand this. The head is connected to the body. The head is only a blessing and a help to the body insofar as that head is united to the body. Sever the head, and the body is lifeless. The head is united unto the body. That union is by faith, beloved. And that union that we have with the head is a union that cannot be interrupted. 
There is nothing that can sever the headship of Jesus Christ over His church. The heathen will rage against the church. The people will imagine a vain and wicked thing against the church and do everything in their power to destroy or disrupt the headship that Jesus Christ has over the church. But our confidence is that God will never permit the bride of Jesus Christ to be separated from Him who is her head. And consider with me as well, beloved, what a weighty responsibility this is for us as members of the church. If Christ is our head, that He, by the Father, governs all things. He rules over us. What a duty we have then to obey the head. Children understand this as well about the body. The head contains the brain, and the brain is the one that commands the body to do this or do that. Hand, the brain commands the hand to rise up, to grab hold of this or that, and the body obeys. The duty we have then to obey our head, Jesus Christ. He does not always give easy commandments. He calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. He calls us to flee fornication abstain from the lusts of the flesh. To be pure and holy, for without holiness no man shall see God. What a duty we have to live in holiness with Jesus Christ as our head. And then consider with me as well the fact that His headship is an exclusive headship. He's not one of many heads. A multi-headed individual is a monster. The church is no monstrosity, but the church is the glorious and beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. And there is one head who rules over her, Jesus. It is not the case that as Christians we must strive in order to have Jesus Christ become head over the church. It is not as if Jesus Christ stands there knocking at the door, asking, pleading of you, will you please accept me as your head? I would be your head if only you would open up the door of your heart and permit me to enter in and be head who rules over you. No, Jesus Christ is the sovereign, the almighty, and the exclusive head over His church. It is not the case as the post-millennialists teach that it is the duty of the church to go out and assert the headship of Jesus Christ over all the kingdoms and the nations of this earth. That we must gain others for some sort of an earthly kingdom that is governed by Christian morals and Christian principles. No, Jesus Christ already is the head over His 
church. What comfort we have in knowing that our head sits at God's right hand. He rules us by His grace. Answer 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of that. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by His Holy Spirit He pours out heavenly graces upon us, His members. Grace, that gift of God which we do not deserve, Grace, a power by which God takes that which is ugly and spotted and wrinkled and God transforms into that which is beautiful and attractive and comely. Grace, able to take that which is dead and make it alive again. It is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. The grace that Jesus Christ pours out upon us is a heavenly grace. The source of this grace cannot be found upon this earth. Oh, how hard Man tries to find grace on this earth. He tries to find that which is beautiful, that which is comely on this earth. And he says, here, here is evidence that there is grace in the heart of man by nature. Here, you see this good deed that the neighbor performed? There's evidence that there is in every man Grace upon this earth. No, the grace that we receive is not an earthly grace, but a heavenly grace. He pours out heavenly graces upon us. Heavenly graces are of no interest to the carnal man. The man of this world who is preoccupied with himself and his own comforts and his own protection and his own existence upon this earth does not seek or pray for heavenly graces. Think of the wicked sons of Lamech, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. Men who were of renown, men who were given great abilities, men of great cunning, men who had brilliant insights into the things of this earth, who tended to their herds and their cattle, who with great ability could play instruments of music, who were artificers of brass and of iron, who were respected by a great number of people upon this earth, but who used all of those abilities that they had not in the service of Almighty God, not to seek the great King of the church, but for the advancement and the protection of themselves. And so it is for us by nature that 
we would have no interest in these heavenly graces. For we become so preoccupied about earthly blessings and creaturely comforts that we fail to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust that God will provide us with all things that we need. Beloved, it is an evidence of the grace of God in your hearts already that you are even interested in these heavenly graces. We go from grace to grace. It is because God has given you heavenly graces through Jesus Christ His Son that you are interested in the Word of God. That you come to the house of the Lord to hear His Word proclaimed. How does Jesus Christ as He sits at God's right hand pour out these heavenly graces upon us. Two things we say about the manner in which Christ dispenses these graces to us. Limited, but generous. Limited, but generous. The Catechism speaks both of the limiting clause, the limiting factor, these graces that He pours out as well, how generous He is. Catechism says, answer 51, He pours out heavenly graces upon us, His members. And there's the limiting factor about how Jesus Christ pours out His heavenly graces. He does not pour out a universal, worldwide grace upon every single member, head for head, upon the face of this earth. But the grace that He pours out is a grace that is reserved for those who are His members. Recall that there's this union that we have with Jesus Christ, our head. That He sits at God's right hand and yet He is not severed from us, but He is united unto us. And it's through that union, that bond of faith that Jesus has established with us that He gives unto us these heavenly graces that He gives these graces unto us, and that He does not give these graces unto the reprobate, is no reason, beloved, for pride, for haughtiness of heart, as if we ourselves made ourselves to differ. Grace. The very definition of grace shows that we don't deserve it. It's undeserved, forfeited favor. With humility of heart, we receive this grace of God which changes us and makes us beautiful. But then as well, note His generosity as He gives this grace, the Catechism says, He pours out heavenly graces. He is not stingy. 
and giving grace to you. We must be careful not to measure His grace in terms of our physical prosperity, physical health, strength, or abilities. These are heavenly graces that He pours out. Think of a river flowing down to the ocean. A mighty mighty and broad river And that river flows down and at the end of that river it opens up and is poured into the ocean. And that's the idea, beloved, of God's grace that He pours out upon us who are His members. Jesus Christ does not withhold grace from those who are righteous. He does not put conditions in place and say, if you do this or if you do that, then I will bless you. But in richest love for His bride, He pours out these graces. Nothing will ever interrupt Jesus Christ from pouring these graces out upon us. Nothing can interrupt Him because He's the head. There's nobody higher than Jesus Christ. It might seem as if, from our earthly perspective, the blessings of Christ are interrupted. There are times where we are not always so aware of God's blessings at times that we do not sense His favor, His nearness, His love for us. At those times it is important that we remember that our feelings, though they are real, do not always indicate reality. And The reality is that Jesus Christ always pours out His graces, heavenly graces, upon us, His members. and He defends us and preserves us as well. The second half of answer 51b, and then that by His power, He defends and preserves us against all our enemies. Oh, how the church needs protection. The church is very small in the midst of the world. Think of the days of Elijah when there were but 7,000 who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. At times that awareness of the smallness of the church in comparison to the world is impressed upon our reality, our consciousness. At times we would think that the church is soon to be overwhelmed by the world, shall be swallowed up by the seemingly unstoppable force and power of the wicked. Jesus knows 
how vulnerable the church is by nature. He knows because He was on this earth, Jesus Christ in the flesh, who Himself faced the mighty enemies of the world. Jesus Christ who Himself tasted of death, who knows and understands the fear that man has as man stands against wickedness. Over against these enemies, we confess that Jesus Christ defends and preserves. That He defends and preserves against the enemies of the church must not be misinterpreted to mean that we who are the members of the church are never going to see the enemy. It doesn't mean that we're never going to have contact with the enemy. It does not mean that the enemy is not going to get close and at times that the battle is going to be very personal so that we're wrestling against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness and high places. No, this battle is very close and this battle is a very intimate, personal battle. The assurance that we have as Christians is not that Jesus Christ is going to make the pathway unto heaven be broad and be easy. But the assurance that we have as Christians is that Jesus Christ defends and preserves us against all enemies. He will, Psalm 2 verse 4, have them in derision. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Not without purpose does Jesus Christ defend and preserve His church. He does so for your salvation. He does so for the glory of His Father's name in heaven. He does so because without the will of our Father, we would be swallowed up by our enemies. He is the head who loves His church. He's already laid down His life for her. In principle, the victory is ours. And in time, one by one, He takes us from off this earth and brings us to be with Him, the head in heaven. Not unto us, O Lord, be glory given, but unto Thee. May all praise and glory and honor be given. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, how comforting it is to us to know that our elder brother sits at Thy right hand, that he holds the scepter in his hand, He directs all things in the church and outside of the church according to Thy good pleasure. Wilt Thou bless and keep us 
Forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.